Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you all here this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read the entire chapter, but our focal text this morning is going to be the first two verses which make up the introduction to this letter. We're going to read the entire chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and then return to those, those verses. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true son in faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Just as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus so that you would instruct certain people not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to useless speculation rather than advance the plan of God, which is by faith. So I urge you now. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Some people have strayed from these things and have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they are making, they make confident assertions. But now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and worldly, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, homosexuals, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which, with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he has considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was previously a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I, have I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full accept acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God to honor, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This commandment I trust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, with some, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. Amen. This is the word of God for his people. It is my hope that over the next months, uh, I will be able, God willing, to preach through the entire book of 1 Timothy. What we have here is just the introduction, 
And so for those of you who will be taking notes, the outline of the message is simple. There will be three points. Number one, we'll look at the sender of the letter. Number two, we will look at the recipient of the letter. And then thirdly, we will look at the gospel implications of the introduction. Before we get started, let me open us in prayer. Father, we gather to give you thanks. We assemble to give you all honor and praise and glory. We lift our voice to you in worship, knowing that you are worthy of all worship. We seek your help in understanding the scriptures that are before us. We ask for your grace. We ask that you graciously speak to us, that you open our ears, that we may behold wonderful things from your word. We pray that your grace would be poured out in abundance, that through your feeble servant you would feed your people, that we would hear the voice of the shepherd who calls those who are still astray, that those who hear would turn and believe. We ask these things for your glory and for your great name's sake. In Christ's name, amen. Well, church, when we come to the letters that are written by the apostle to the churches, the subject matter usually addresses some outside influence that has negatively impacted the delivered and established sound teaching of the church. Sometimes there are schisms that um, have taken root, and the apostle will write to the church in order to set the people of God straight. And this letter that we have here is just a little different in the sense that it is directed to Paul's protege. This letter is one of three pastoral epistles that are called pastoral epistles because they are directly instructing pastoral situations within the church. At its early beginnings, there were already issues that began to arise with regarding teaching, issues that gave the apostle reasons to write to Timothy in order to put a stop to those who were teaching such strange doctrines. We could say that the apostle had some prophetic insight into this troubling reality even early on. If we look at Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 31, there the apostle Paul wrote to the elders at Ephesus saying, though he had taught them profitable things, savage wolves would come in not sparing the flock, and that from among them would arise men speaking perverse things. Well, this was the reality now before Timothy. This was the reality in which Paul is writing. And beloved, as a, just a word to us here at Bethany, as we receive this letter, as we open it up, we too here at Bethany must not assume that our season of blessed unity and strength and sound teaching are things that we can give no guard to. We mustn't become sleepers who take for granted the relative calm and peace that we have in our congregation. Now, I say that not to bring about um, heresy hunting or sin sniffing from among us in the church, but rather so that we would hold fast and be sober, holding to the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints, and that we would be about practicing that faith with a clear conscience. We, like Timothy, like the early church, must maintain the unity of the body of Christ here 
not just for unity's sake, but for the sake of what is true. Consequently, when we do that, brothers, when we strive to maintain the faith, holding fast the clear teachings of Jesus, this adds to the health of the church. And it does so in many ways. I'll mention one just as we get started. It's very important. Aside from having the benefit of a unified assembly, one thing that is good for the church is that it will also be a way in which we care for our pastors and our elders. When we maintain the unity of sound teaching within the church, this causes the elders and the pastors of this church to watch over our souls with joy. And we must guard ourselves and them with prayer and by the light of Scripture and the clarity of the gospel. We must continually be firm and settled and not give one millimeter to compromise. We must do battle, brothers and sisters, so that we can order our personal and communal lives according to the Word of God. Be sober, be alert. Hold fast, stand firm, declaring the whole purpose of God and the clarity and simplicity of the person and work of our Lord Jesus. That was the clarion call for Timothy in his day, and that, my brothers, is the clarion call for us in our day. The church gathered into one under Christ as her head is the spouse, the body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is the co-located representation of the heavenly spiritual reality of God's goodness and faithfulness to His people. It is to us the blessed gathering for the purpose of worshiping our God as a testimony to Him before a dead and dying world. Dear ones, the church in heaven and on earth is where God's glory is on full display by His Word and through the Holy Spirit. What is taught here is of utmost importance. And so we have the letter which addresses these things and more We have the apostle informing Timothy of this very purpose for which he writes the letter in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, where there he says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the living, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That is the overarching purpose of the letter. And we are also reminded here of how Jesus cared for His bride here in the, old, in, the, in the early parts of the church and how Jesus cares for His bride even today through men whom He has gifted to the church. In this letter, we find divine care and apostolic teaching so that we can arrange our lives accordingly in the areas of prayer, instruction for women, the qualification of elders and deacons, knowing the dangers of apostasy, the good work of the minister's discipline, and the details around identifying and and the treatment of widows with regard to benevolence. Lord willing, as we have opportunity, I look forward to opening those things up through 
messages in the future. But for now, we look to the introduction. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus who is our Lord. Amen. When we come to this introduction and most other introductions that are found in the epistles, I wonder if we consider them or if we skip past them to get to the meat of the letter. Do we weigh each word with prayer and deep consideration? Or do we find it just another formal introduction and skip past to the parts where we find the deepest instruction? Brethren, I hope that we might refrain our think, reframe our thinking to see that with redemptive purpose, every word has an unfolding purpose in human history in the context of God's plan. And it does so, meeting itself in a majestic and wonderful climax in the incarnation, the death, resurrection, ascension, and subsequent return of the only begotten Son of the Father. I hope that we will see each word that rise upon the pages before us as the lamp and light in the preceding darkness that illuminates our way home. I want to encourage us to rethink even those difficult areas of text. You all know the ones, the chronological orders, the, genealog the genealogies that have all of the begats. Some of those are very difficult. But brethren, we have in them the uh, divine author's use of the human author, injecting so much weight into each word that a thousand sermons could not exhaust them. Now, I'm not trying to hype up these two verses simply because that's where we are today, but I am wanting to stir us up because of the inexhaustible glory that truly exists on the pages of the Scriptures before you. We turn to those two verses and though they are little, they are packed with much meaning. So for the first part, we'll look at the sender, who is Paul. Who is this writer? Well, Paul, like Timothy, comes to us in the narrative of Scripture from the book of Acts. And Paul has another name where we first see him. His name is Saul of Tarsus in the book of Acts. Now, Saul was a good, old-fashioned Jewish name. And you might be familiar with that name, Saul, as we find it in the Old Testament. It was the name of the first king of Israel. And Saul means prayed for. And no doubt that was the hope of every Hebrew family that bestowed the name upon their sons. But Paul of Tarsus also had a Greek, Saul of Tarsus also had a Greek name, Paulus. Given that Paul was born a Roman citizen, it is very likely that he had this at his birth. And the word, the name Paul means little. And it is under this name that we most are familiar with the apostle, the humble apostle. And in many areas of the New Testament, we also see that Paul gives his own autobiographical sense of his life prior to coming to know Christ and after. For instance, we read in Philippians chapter 3 there that Paul is a proud Jew, 
circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee. Saul, as he's known prior, had no great love for the Gentiles. In fact, this Saul of Tarsus, as he first appears to us in Acts chapter 7, we learn held the coats of those who raised stones to the first Christian martyr of the New Testament, Stephen. And if we continue on to the beginning of chapter 8, we see there that not only did Saul hold the cloaks of those who participated in that death, but Saul approved of the death of Stephen. This, Saul from there continues in his thirst to persecute those who follow in the way, or Christians, ravaging the church, dragging followers of Christ to prison. And in Acts chapter 9, Saul's desirous plan comes to a screaming halt. And if you are unfamiliar with that account, let me just give you a brief synopsis on his way to Damascus upon the road. He is met by the risen Lord Jesus, who knocks him to the ground, blinds him by the light, and then and there, Saul is converted. This violent blasphemer of God is literally brought into the light and becomes a believer in Jesus and a son of God. This is the first of two events that would qualify Paul as an apostle. You see, an apostle must have seen the Lord Jesus. Well, on the road to Damascus, check, Paul met Jesus. And number two, an apostle must have been taught and sent by Jesus. Well, following the Damascus Road event, Saul, blinded by the light, awaits a disciple named Ananias, who was met by the Lord, and sends him to give sight to Paul. After some protesting by Ananias, who raises the fact that this Saul is known for persecuting believers in Jesus, but the Lord declares to him that Saul is a chosen instrument and that he would be sent to speak and bear the name of Jesus before the Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel. Later in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul is also confirmed there by the other apostles, by James, Cephas, and John. In Acts 13.2, we are told that the Holy Spirit calls for the setting aside of Saul and Barnabas for the work which he had called them to do. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, Luke pens these words, But Saul, who was also Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is from there that we know this apostle by the name of Paul. Thinking through the conversion for a moment of Saul, let me speak to the unbeliever here this morning. Friend, it is the testimony of Scripture that God is great in mercy and that we are all great sinners. But God at the perfect time sent forth His Son conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. He lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. Being truly God and truly man, this Jesus went willingly to the cross to die the death that you and I deserve. And in His body He bore the sins of a multitude of people who come to Him. 
and trust in Him alone for acceptance before our holy God. He died and was buried and rose again the third day, witnessed by many just as the Scripture declared. And in His resurrection, He not only proves that His death was accepted by God, but He also sets us right before Him. He is the only trustworthy Savior who is able to make atonement for the vilest offender. Friend, there is no place where God's grace cannot meet you. This is the same grace that saved Saul on the road to Damascus, changing him from an enemy to a son. And it is the same grace that God calls you to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus this very moment. Do not harden your heart. Do not delay. As we already heard, it's a simple thing. Look to Jesus and live. So the undeserving grace and mercy of God comes to Paul, and he is converted. We see Paul as an apostle of Christ Jesus, set aside by the calling of the Holy Spirit, and he represents in this letter the authority of the one who sends him. So that when Paul writes the letter, he does not do so under the authority of himself, but under the authority of the Lord who is the head of the church. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God. Now, knowing that Timothy and Paul have such a close relationship, it seems like this formal introduction of this letter is a little bit overkill. Timothy, as we know, is a dear companion to Paul, well known by him. So why this formal introduction? Well, we can gather from the letter, much of what we've read here in chapter 1 already, that Paul is writing to give specific apostolic instruction to Timothy, and that that instruction would then be given by Timothy to the church. One thing that we can make note of also is the command structure that we see within chapter 1. Paul an apostle by the commandment of God, commands Timothy to command those in the church to stop teaching strange doctrines. You see, this is the way that apostolic instruction was transferred to the church, and it is the same way in which we get correction within our church. We submit ourselves under the care of elders, who diligently search the Scriptures, guarding, transmitting good, sound doctrine. And we, like Timothy, receive that from the command of God. Paul teaches Timothy to command others. This is the direction that the church receives sound teaching. Paul, in support of Timothy, signs into the letter with God-given authority so that That which is contained here is received with apostolic authority. That is Paul, the sender. Number two, let's look at the receiver, Timothy. Timothy comes to us in the Scriptures from Acts chapter 16 for the very first time. There, in verses 1 through 3, we read, Now Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. 
And he was well spoken of by the brothers and sisters who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to leave with him, and so he took him. Timothy was the son of a Jewish Gentile marriage. His mother and grandmother taught him the Old Testament scriptures, and Paul will write in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 that this man has known the scriptures from his youth. But it was under the ministry of Paul's teaching that he became converted to Christ. This is why Paul addresses Timothy as my true son in the faith. Paul was the human instrument by which God used for Timothy to receive the gospel. Timothy would go on as Paul's trusted companion, and in many of Paul's letters he's mentioned in their introductions. Timothy is called the minister, called to minister to the church, though we are not certain what specific office Timothy led, only that he had some apostolic calling to serve the church in some fashion. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul would send Timothy and tells the church that he has no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for their welfare. For everyone else seeks their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But Paul says to the church at Philippi, you know of Timothy's proven character and that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things are going with me. Timothy, a trusted and dear companion of the apostle, follower of Jesus, and a man of proven character whose interest and concern was not his own, but that of Christ's and his church. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Paul emphasizes the genuineness and authenticity of Timothy's conversion as opposed to those who may have followed Paul's teaching for a while but then turned away. This may be in contrast to some who sat under Paul's teaching. At the end of chapter 1, we hear of Hymenaeus and Alexander, others who have turned away. But this was not true about Timothy. And Paul testifies to that in the second verse, that he is Paul's true son in the faith. My friends, when we come to true faith in Christ, the assurance of our faith is not what we have done in the past but it is the work that continues on in our lives by the Holy Spirit. Our walk looks more and more like the walk of grace and power in the Lord Jesus, upheld by the Holy Spirit, that we do not turn away. This was true about Timothy, and Paul testifies to this in verse 2. There's something else here that I want to mention to the believer present. Beloved, if it is true about you that you were born again, that you are securely in Christ, then it is also true that someone, somewhere, at some time, faithfully shared the gospel with you, and you saw the truth concerning Jesus. You have received the word of life by the preaching of the gospel. This person was to you a Paul 
a type of Paul. And perhaps that person is still around. Maybe you have contact with them. Maybe it's someone in this church. Maybe it's a family member. Let me encourage you to pray for them often. Give thanks to God for their faithful service in the ministry of the gospel that has led to you grasping the eternal life offered by the grace of God and His Son. Pray for them. And let me also ask, if you are a young believer, maybe you are a Timothy and you are learning under a type of Paul. I encourage you, pray that God would raise you up, give you clear instruction in the discipleship that you are participating in that you also may give away what you have freely received. What do you have that you have not received? Let us share the gospel of Jesus with others. Timothy, my true son in the faith. Well, at this point, we'll turn to the third point, and we'll probably spend the rest of our time here in the message, which is the gospel in the introduction. You see, the very identities of Paul and Timothy are submerged in gospel truth, gospel context, and gospel narrative. Paul, as an apostle of Christ, set aside by the Holy Spirit, sent for the purpose of the gospel. Timothy, a man of God built up and spiritually fed by Paul for the benefit of the early church and the good of the saints and the glory of God for the gospel. That is how we receive these two men from the pages of Scripture. And even in this little introduction, the apostle wraps the entire purpose of not only in the introduction itself, but what flows from that introduction in the rest of the letter, he wraps it in redemptive purpose in the work and person of an eternal God. From the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 all the way into the New, we find this truth regarding God as the one who promised to defeat the works of the devil and to call a people his own and to be their God. He would do so as their Savior. And from the bondage of Egypt, God delivered, saved his people and brought them out to set them on their way to the promised land. But on this side of the cross, we see that redemptive historic is, uh, narrative of Israel as a type. It is a type to us that we, by Christ, are saved from the bondage of sin and death, just as Adrian mentioned this morning. If you are a Christian, you are no longer in bondage to sin, but have been set free by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ unto newness of life. Saved from the power of sin. Hear the words of Paul, God is our Savior. This redemptive theme is unfolded throughout the Old Testament, proving time and time again that the Lord Jesus would and did pay the penalty that you and I owe for sin. His perfect, sinless life, given as a sacrifice that satisfies the justice and wrath of the Father in heaven. Saving us from the penalty of sin. Hear the words, God is our Savior. And brethren, oh, how we wait for that day when freed from sinning. 
that we will behold in the fullness of his presence, unstained, undefiled, undistracted, the fullness of him who our hearts desire. Saving us from the very presence of sin. Salvation, dear ones, is of the Lord. God alone is Savior. There is no other. Let us look now at the last part of verse 1. And of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Christ Jesus, who? I know in our copies of modern translations, the words who is is not present. Those are given there to help us so that we can follow the subject and the context that is presented before them. But even without those two words, it would read this way, and some of yours might read this way in the ESV. Christ Jesus, our hope. This clearly connects the person as the source of our hope. Secondly, we can say that this is not emphasizing only the moral aspects of Jesus as our hope. It is not only the good teachings of Jesus that is our hope, as if the practice of Christianity can somehow be separated from the divine person of Christ. This is not a general component of a good religious system that can be plucked out of the whole and held up as a thing to strive for. No. And there are systems today that do just that. They elevate the work of Christ so much as they accept the work simply as an example, as that which can be added to another system, creating some sort of smorgasbord religion. We take a little bit of Buddha, a little bit of Muhammad, a little bit of Jesus, and we serve it up as a religious hope detached from the reality of the accepted divine person and nature of Jesus. My friends, there is no Heinz 57 hope that will assure you entry into a nirvana. If your position is that here, if you are banking on the fact that learning how to live the Christian life apart from Christ will somehow garner you favor with a God of your own understanding, then you are lost and you have no hope Just as there is one Savior only who has declared and promised Himself as the God of our salvation from the beginning, there is only one hope. Christ Jesus who is and who is to come. This, the Apostle establishes for us, is the Messiah Christ who is called Jesus. Truly God and truly man. God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. So we have the identity of the Messiah now established as our hope, but what does hope mean? Well, this is one of the many areas where worldly understanding and biblical worldview stand stark distances apart. The definition and usage, the understanding and application of words. And in this case, the word is hope. When the Scripture speaks of hope, it is not the same way in which the culture we live speaks of hope. I have some quick definitions for us that I got from a reliable internet source. 
an internet source that used to be solely in print where things were much harder and simply uh, impossible to change, but now the keeping of definitions exists in the digital space where those definitions can be changed at the whim of the culture. But nonetheless, here is that trustworthy definition. Hope, a feeling of expectation, a desire for something to happen, a wish. Now, there are many single-word similarities to hope that we find in the Oxford Dictionary, in the Webster Dictionary. Some of them come close to the biblical definition, but still fall very short. Mainly, and this is the chasm of difference, mainly because the world uses the word hope as an outcome based upon the chance that a positive outcome might come about. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty in that statement. Let me give you an example. Quote, I really hope that it rains today. Well, it did this morning, actually. But there is a chance that it will not. I hope that my car makes it and does not break down. There is reason to doubt that the car might not make it. I really hope that Johnny can do everything that he says. Here, we find uncertainty. Uncertainty in circumstances, uncertainty in the person Johnny. There is nothing sure about that hope. What then is the biblical hope? When the Scripture uses hope, it is not the way, of course, that we use it. Because in the biblical definition of hope, there is zero Zero uncertainty. Biblical hope is not just a desire for a good outcome by chance in the present or future. Biblical hope is the confident expectation based on the certainty and faithfulness of the God who promises it. Let me repeat that. Biblical hope is the confident expectation based on the certainty and faithfulness of God who has promised it. Christ Jesus is the one upon whom the promises of Almighty God find their end. And in Him they are yes and amen. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins against a thrice holy God of all creation. With His life, death, burial, therefore He is our only hope. Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, conquering death, ascending to the right hand of the Father, where He now lives to make intercession for you and I before God. Therefore, He is our present hope. Christ Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, and He will come again and receive us unto Himself, so that where He is, we will also be. Therefore, Christ Jesus is our future hope. And outside of these truths, whether you are a believer or not, there is no other hope. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says this, Hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts so that the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Christ alone, my dear friends, is the only hope of salvation, our only hope of the supply of grace, our only hope of mercy, 
and our only hope of peace with God. So Paul says, Christ Jesus, our hope. This brings us to the last part of the introduction at the end of verse 2. We find these three little words, grace, mercy, and peace, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Brethren, packed into those words is so much glorious truth, glorious truth of the workings of the gospel promise. Paul gives to Timothy this tripart blessing, grace. For it is by grace through faith in Christ Jesus that we are saved. That is the power of God to save, His supply of saving grace. And it is through the continual supply of that grace that we are sustained in living the Christian life. What is grace? Simply put, grace is unmerited favor. It is God in His goodness and kindness giving to the sinner what the sinner does not deserve and enabling the sinner to do what he cannot do on his own. You see, if we plead to God apart from grace and apart from Christ, then what we are asking for is God's justice. That is what we deserve. We deserve God's justice. And what we find in God's justice is that the wages for even one sin is death and eternal damnation. For God's justice cannot simply wipe away a single sin without being satisfied and atoned for. Before pardon from sin, God's justice must be satisfied. And it is only by God's grace, friends, that we receive faith in Christ's person and work, resulting in the salvation of our souls. A grace and salvation we cannot merit, we cannot earn, It must be freely given. Then the apostle says, mercy, grace, mercy. Like grace, mercy is something that we cannot earn. It is nothing deserved. And a great way to keep this in mind or to illustrate this is the next time you might stand in a court of law before a judge on the defending side of your innocency, Stand up and declare you demand mercy. It will not go well. If we plead our case apart from grace, apart from mercy, then again we get God's justice, and we do not want to be on the receiving end of God's justice. What then? Hear the plead of David in Psalm 51. The plea goes like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all of my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned, And done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict. And justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now to whom God's grace is richly poured out. And to whom God's mercy 
is given, there will be peace with God. Grace, mercy, and peace. The hard reality is we come into the world as God's enemy. That's not an opinion. That's what we find in Romans chapter 5. But thanks be to God for His grace that by the blood of Jesus we are made sons of God. But there are some present here today who are still enemies of God. What do you do? What shall you plead? Do you grip tightly the pew in front of you? Do you hold tight to the book in your lap? Or do you hear the invitation here? Through faith in Jesus, all weapons are cast down. There is an eternal end to all hostilities, and there is peace with God. As we come to a close this morning, looking back at this little introduction, we have touched upon some of the greatest truths contained in Scripture. These truths will be the foundation for the letter which Paul has given to Timothy that the God of Scripture is a gracious and merciful Savior, that Christ Jesus alone is our only hope, and that by His grace and mercy, there is the certainty of peace. Unbelieving friend, from the little ones to the older ones, I make one last plea with you. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. For if you do not come to Jesus in faith and repentance, you will not meet God as a Savior. Your days are short. You will meet God as a judge. And Christ Jesus will not be your hope. He will be your executioner. Here is the call. Lay down your weapons. Cast down your own self-righteousness. Look not to your sufficiencies, but see an all-sufficient Savior who can and does save. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we look to you and we recognize that we can do nothing apart from Christ. Your word will not fail. Your word goes forth with power. The gospel is your power of salvation unto those who believe. And we pray, O oh God, that you would be merciful unto those who are yet set outside Christ. That you would till the, the dirt of their hard hearts, that they would receive the word of the gospel with joy that by the resurrected power of Christ Jesus they will live. Oh God, break down the wall of pride. Break down the wall of sufficient world religious systems. Show them to be what they are. A lie from Satan on a road to destruction. You have put eternity into our hearts that we may gain a heart of wisdom let us number our days. 
Let us see now the invitation stands ready. Christ, the good shepherd, has spoken. Let those who hear, hear his voice. As the scriptures say, come and drink from the rivers of life. Take from the fountain of life freely without cost. Christ calls us, O God. And we have faith and trust. And when he says, all who come to him, he will not cast out. We know that this is a true saying. Impart this truth to the hearts of those who are yet outside of the faith, that they may look to Jesus and live. In Christ's name, amen.